Welcome to the dignity of suffering. Have you ever been brought to your knees by the challenges of life? What if you could enter the world of the therapist, be a fly on the wall, and hear their stories and insights into life's biggest challenges? Discovering a place to learn from the experiences of others who've tried to find dignity in their suffering. Each week, Mitchell Smolkin takes a candid look at the trials and tribulations of being alive. Mitchell is a registered psychotherapist, author and speaker. He hopes to show that slowing down and becoming curious about our human experience can enrich our perspectives and plant our feet more firmly on the ground. Now, here's Mitchell. Welcome to a special episode of The Dignity of Suffering, a live interview that took place on June 3rd, 2021. My guest today, Dr. Gabor Mate, is one of the most influential thinkers alive. He has tried for decades to tell the truth about the connection between traumatic experience and the damaging effects it can have on our lives. He has done so with a unique candor, never separating himself from the arduous journey of self-exploration that he advocates for, and in so doing, he has time and time again afforded a particular dignity to the process. Gabor has a penetrating intellect, and I won't lie that I needed to prepare myself in many ways for potentially sharp responses from him. He has his own imitable style of engaging, which I have come to appreciate as brutally honest, yet caring. I have been mulling over in my mind for weeks the main question that I wanted to pose to him, which involved a concern of mine around those that are shamed in our society, particularly as of late, where especially men are being called out for aggressive and often violent behaviors. My concern is not with the truth being named in our efforts as a society to afford safety to everyone. This needs to happen. I was curious how we might address the pain that is exposed and not further shove it underground and breed more division in our communities. As you'll hear, I attempted to distill a number of my recent reflections from the aggressive actions of Belarus's dictator Lukashenko, which for me epitomizes on a geopolitical level a violent rage against vulnerability and protest, to the social and political divisions that have dominated the American landscape as of late. At the end of the interview, Gabor and I touch on the terrible tragedy, the discovery of the indigenous graves of children in Canada, and Gabor certainly doesn't mince his words around that. Gabor helped me clarify my disparate thoughts. I feel like I crave the chance to bounce these ideas off of him, and he did a deep dive into just how traumatized our leaders are, and by extension how numb we are as a society to dismissive, and aggressive actions towards children. If anything cuts to the heart of his message, this is it. A call to action to be aware of how impactful our behavior is to each other, and particularly to our young ones. 
Gabor almost surprises himself at some point with the simplicity of it all when he remarks, You treat human beings well, they are going to be okay. You don't treat them well, especially when they are children, they are not going to be okay. I have seen him on stage cut through all the noise like he did in our interview and stand up to everyone in the room and call it like it is. I feel like he has been doing this for a very long time and we are better for it. I hope you enjoy my interview with him. It's a huge pleasure to have you here. You know, we've met peripherally a couple of times. You probably don't remember me, but we were both lost in San Diego at the EFT conference and I helped you find the auditorium. And then it was funny because it happened again. It happened again in Toronto where we found ourselves lost. And of course, in my mind, it was, it was meant to be that we'd be speaking at some point. So I really appreciate that you agreed to come on and many, Many of the people here know you. You don't need an introduction, but I thought maybe I'll give an introduction just from my own perspective of how I came to know your work, kind of what touched me, and then we can maybe, you know, slowly move into a conversation and and some of the topic at hand. Does that sound okay? Well, hey, if you want to talk about how my work touched you, take two or three hours. Take your time. <laughs> I'll hold you to that. <laughs> I... You know, I think there were two moments. There was a CBC, a Canadian Broadcasting Corporation interview, oh, 15 years ago, it must have been. And you were talking about Circle of Kin. I don't even know if you remember that, but, you know, I haven't really seen that a lot in the writing elsewhere, but you were, I think, talking about the reduction of kind of Circle of Kin and how that obviously affects people in terms of loneliness or in terms of stressors in life. And and the other place, and I'm not sure if this was in the Globe and Mail, but you, you know, you were a pioneer in writing articles controversial articles, I think, in the beginning about the correlation of not so much stress, but even personality organization and, and ALS and Lou Gehrig's disease. And I think those were the first two places that I came in touch with your work. And then, you know, for those that don't know, you spent a good chunk of your career as a physician working in the East Side in Vancouver, delivering babies. And I think as a general practitioner, and then slowly but surely things began to click, I guess. And maybe we can, you know, go into a bit of that today. And you wrote, yeah, a number of, of extremely deep and important books on attention deficit disorder, scattered minds, on the body's capacity to deal with trauma when the body says no. I think a book that is most familiar to people in the realm of the hungry ghosts. You have a new book coming out and you have a movie which is like coming out next week. This is you're on the heels of a huge <laughs> launch of a film. So you must be very busy. Well, the, uh, first of all, thank you. The film is called The Wisdom of Trauma and people can just check wisdom of trauma dot, the wisdom of trauma dot com. And it's, it's really on some of my work around trauma and also about trauma in general. Um, it's, it's the work of uh, some California filmmakers who decided to make it. People can check it out online. You know, they, they ask for a donation, but if nobody has to make one, most people don't pay anything at all and they don't need to. It's, um, it'll be a week of uh, interviews as well with some very leading trauma experts, uh, Stephen Porges, Peter Levine, Reese McCammon, Dan Siegel, Esther Perel, and others. And so it'll be a week of interesting conversations and the film being shown, and you can sign up for that. 
And yes, I mean, uh, I'm a few weeks away from completing, revising the manuscript for my uh, final manuscript for my next book, which will be published the, uh, next April. So yeah, I keep busy. <laughs> well, congratulations. I can't wait to read it. It strikes me that, I mean, even the film being made and this cohort of names that, you know, have become synonymous with the body, Peter Levine and the polyvagal theory, Stephen Porges, and the ways that we now understand you know, these really important ways that we've integrated our understanding of what happens to us under extreme duress. But I was wondering, and I know you write about this a bit, but I get to ask you the questions that I want to ask you. And I've always been curious about what it was like early on when you know you were writing, you were putting pieces out for instance, about ALS. And, you know, my impression, and maybe it's wrong, was that it was uh, somewhat lonely or, I mean, it must have been a risk to to start to try to change the narrative. And, and I guess the question is more connected to the film. I mean, here you are now in 2021 and you're amongst your peers and this narrative isn't, I don't think it's not accepted in the sense that it's, you know, it, it's still hard very often to cross through some of these hoops. But it's certainly more part of the popular narrative than it was. And I'm just curious what your experience has been, that trajectory for you as a thinker, as a physician and writer. Yeah, it's interesting. Like right now, trauma has been really taken up by the public in a major way. I mean, this Bessel van der Kolk's best-selling book, The Body Keeps the Score. Bruce Perry, another wonderful psychiatrist, trauma researcher, new book, What's hap what happened to you with Oprah? You know, these books are both bestsellers. Hmm. My books have perennially done very, very well. They've been published in close to 30 languages now. And so, no, you're right. It hasn't entered the medical mainstream yet because they're extraordinarily resistant to all this scientific information. But it's hard to recall. But I, what it was like for me is I had this naive idea in the beginning that all you got to do is show something to be true. And then the whole world's going <laughs> to say, oh, thank you. <laughs> it's not, it wasn't quite like that. So that there's been a lot of resistance over the years. Fortunately for me, I don't care about that. I've always been very confident intellectually so that I'm not saying I've been confident as a human being, but I've been confident intellectually. So that once I know something to be tried, I don't care who agrees with me and who doesn't. I just say it. I recall back in grade five in communist Hungary, my teacher wrote on my report card that he better watch it because he's inciting his classmates. You know, <laughs> it's grade five. And so, you know, in other words, I was saying things that I, I didn't like or, you know. So I also had the capacity to, to actually speak what I saw and I don't particularly care who agrees with me. But at the same time, not that I look back, it was frustrating at times and lonely at times. But you know what? That was a minor aspect of it. Much more important for me was that from the moment I began to write and speak, so many people got it. If my colleagues didn't get it, well, that's their problem. But a lot of people got it. I mean, people just want to know what's going on. People just want to know the truth. People want to know why they're suffering, why they're creating suffering for others, and what are the dynamics underneath that. So the support and the acknowledgement has always been greater than the being ignored or being countered. So I've had to say it hasn't been that tough. Well, and so much about it, I guess, is content and form, meaning that you, I think what's defined you in many ways is your candor in your own life and not separating yourself from the material and the work. And one book I didn't mention, which 
I think is probably one of the most ethical parenting books that you wrote with uh, Dr. Gordon Newfeld. Yeah. And I thought of it when you when you talked about on your report card that you know you're inciting others and and with that book hold on to your kids and I reread parts of Scattered Minds you know just today before meeting with you was about the capacity for whether it's parents or society I guess to tolerate a certain innate aggression or spirit in the child versus reacting to it or shutting it down or pathologizing it and. So it's an interesting it's an interesting comment that you made that from the beginning there was this I mean were you in your own childhood could you express I mean would your parents or I know I know would your mom react to a comment like that I mean what was what was the environment for you being kind of feisty and look I was always very bright at or near the top of my class so my parents really respected my intellectual abilities um mm. they uh, they probably overemphasized them a bit I on the emotional level, there wasn't a lot of emotional expressivity in my family. Uh, my parents really loved us and they provided a stable home, but there wasn't the emotional expression encouraged or received. So I don't think I've ever told my parents how I felt, not what I thought, but how I felt. I told them what I thought, but I don't think I was ever encouraged to say how I felt about anything. So it was mixed that way. I live and work in Stockholm in Sweden. I used to, I'm, I'm from Toronto, but I yeah. uh, we, we moved here. My wife's a Holocaust uh, researcher, a scholar. And I think in my email to you, I also share that on my mother's side, at least, we lost a huge chunk of my, my mother's family. And it's quite an interesting place to work because unlike Toronto, to some extent, even though there are people always arriving to Toronto, I work almost exclusively with the expat community here. And for instance, you know, a lot from Southeast Asia. And so this this week, a man, you know, who just came from India was telling me that if his sister dated before marriage, his father would have killed her. And and in Toronto, I would have seen this as ironic. You know, here, I knew that he was actually being d deliberate. And so it's interesting when we talk about trauma, I guess, the, the cultural framework of what can be allowed emotionally or coming out of war. I mean, I know that's why I got into this profession. There's people listening today that certainly were there along the way to pick up some of the slack in terms of helping talk about emotion. And I guess the question that that I kind of proposed to you or that, you know, I've been sort of holding in my mind, I don't know if it'll lead us anywhere, but it's certainly something that I think it came for me from something that Zizak, Slavoj Zizak said when he was talking about the refugee crisis in Europe. Mm -hmm. And he was saying something like tolerance and, you know, letting people in is table stakes. Like obviously countries should provide a home for people showing up at their shores. I mean, that's the basic that we can do. He was making the point, of course, that people should be able to live in peace in the places where they're actually from. You know, they shouldn't have to leave in the first place. And in my mind, this may seem like a strange connection, but when it comes to some of the rage that we have seen, whether it's it's the Me Too movement that, you know, was starting to call out some of these environments where rage was being expressed behind closed doors for ever, not just decades, but probably for hundreds of years. Or the polarizing political movement to the south, but geopolitically, of course, that's, I mean, what happened in Belarus the other day with them just plucking, you know, the sky out of the sky. What's kind of been on my mind is that 
to speak specifically, for instance, of shaming people, let's say someone is found out to have aggressive impulses in the workplace or the top brass at the Canadian military, for instance, right now, it seemed to me that all of a sudden things just kind of return to the shadows, that there's a kind of like explosion of guilt or people losing their jobs, fair enough. But the conversation about emotion or pain, it seems to me that it often ends there. And then my perception is the split just remains because it's like shame on top of shame. And I don't know if that's something that crosses your mind or what you think about that. There, just Mitchell, I don't understand your question. I mean, you, you went from hold on to your kids to Schlabber's project to uh, the refugee crisis. To, uh, what are you asking me? I'm asking you fair enough. <laughs> I'm probably just excited, Gabor. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, that's fine. We got the time. I'm happy to be speaking to you. But, but I need to be clear as to what I'm answering. That's all. Of course. It seems to me that these splits, which we can we can see on grand levels, like on macro levels, of course, between uh, countries where emotions are maybe tolerated in different ways or countries that are more repressive, or to take an example to be specific, the Me Too movement where people are understandably vilified for certain behaviors, but then all of a sudden it seems that then these become underground and they become movements that just become even more, more repressed or come out in rage is at least my perception of things. And I don't know, like going back to the election when Trump won, I think Hillary Clinton made some comments and kind of vilified all of Trump's supporters. Yeah, and that- It'd be deplorables. Right, right. And it seemed that the incapacity to somehow hold this tension, who knows if that shifted the election, but at least it, it, okay. it, Okay, well, look, so uh, I'm writing this new book. I just finished, last week I finished a chapter on the trauma of politics. And politics, to take all your comments and gather them up, politics is heavily infused with trauma. So if you take Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, they were two extremely traumatized people. Trump, anybody with a slight understanding of trauma would have seen that trauma in him as soon as he opens his mouth. Every time he speaks, it's trauma speaking. His denial of reality, his inability to stay on task, his uh, difficulty paying attention, uh, his hostility, his aggression. Um, these are all the imprints of a highly traumatized childhood, which one always knew, but which was then documented by his psychologist niece in, in a book that came out about a year ago. Sure. Clinton's trauma, and this is what gets really interesting, was played out on national television and nobody even noticed it. When she had nominated for the Democratic candidacy for presidency, there was a film about her life narrated by the voice of God, Morgan Freeman, you know? And they told this little story about what a wonderful piece of parenting this was, that Clinton's mother wanted her to be resilient. So one day when Hillary was four years old, she ran into the house because she'd been bullied by some neighborhood kids. And the mother said, there's no room for cards in this house. Now you get out there and figure it out. Hmm. Now this is a four-year-old. Now try and tell a mother bear if, if, if a cub comes looking to her for protection to chase them away. In other words, well, this was an assault on a four-year-old's vulnerability. There's nothing more natural than a four-year-old girl seeking protection from the mother bear. Instead, she was shamed for it. And the message she got was, your vulnerability is not welcome in this house. She dissolves this tough persona and she sucks everything up. 
So when her husband philanders around, she puts up with it because she's being told to suck it up. But the point is that this, this piece of child trauma is narrated on national television, seen by 15 million people, and nobody even notices that in the, in the uh, picture there's a child being traumatized. That's how trauma ignorant this society is. Now, when it comes to the refugee crisis and everything else, it's all trauma-informed. Not trauma-informed, trauma-uninformed, but it's infused with trauma. Hmm. So who are these refugees? There are people that come from countries that the West has colonized for hundreds of years and screwed up horribly. I mean, Syria. My son just came back from Syria. He's a journalist. Right now, it's under embargo. They can't rebuild. They can't get medicines. They can't get enough food because of an American embargo. The Americans invade Iraq on, on a completely false lie of weapons of mass destruction. Everybody with half a brain knew that it was a lie. But it went out anyway. But here's what's interesting. You have Madeleine Albright, who's the American Secretary of, Secretary of State, the first female Secretary of State. Well, who cares? Well, you know, I mean, a mass murderer is a mass murderer of any gender. And under her administration, Iraq, before the Iraq War, was um, embargoed, blockaded by the Americans, so they couldn't import food and medicines. Half a million children died. On public television, Madeleine Albright, this Holocaust survivor, or the children of, I think she's herself a survivor, like I am. And she's asked, well, is it worth it, the death of half a million children? She says, yeah, it was a tough decision, but we think well, the price was worth it. We think the price was worth it, half a million children dying. Well, what kind of a traumatized monstrous mentality would say something like that? Then you have the Israel-Palestine conflict, about which I've been really engaged with as a Jew, as a former Zionist. What I see is my people inflicting that trauma onto the indigenous population of Palestine, and, and they continue to do it. They do it horribly to the level of mass murder, as far as I'm concerned. Not as far as I'm concerned, as far as the numbers are concerned. And this is barely even talked about in the West. So that trauma infuses so much of what happens in the world on all sides. I was in my chapter on healing that I just finished writing. I interviewed, you know, I interviewed, I interviewed the grandniece of Hermann Goering. Hermann Goering was the Reichsmarschall, head of the military and, and the head of the Luftwaffe, which bombed Britain. And one of the pillars of the Nazi regime, now her niece, Bettina, told me about this psychic journey she went on. She's an empath and highly traumatized, and I interviewed her. And she said in one of her journeys, she entered the mind of her granduncle, and it was like being at the heart of a monster. This is a, and this, he was an opiate addict. Her, not, what, so what am I saying? There's so much trauma in politics yes, and in international politics, but we don't recognize it as such. And that trauma is present on the side of the perpetrators. And of course, it's inflicted on vulnerable victims. And then when we create these traumas and then people try to escape from those situations, then there are foreigners trying to take over our kind of country. There's all this anti-immigrant sentiment. But this is on the part of people who at some point themselves immigrants, you know? Like, let me say one more thing. I just sure, of course. I just finished reading a novel called The Dream of the Celt by Vargas Losa, who's a Nobel Prize winning Argentinian novelist. 
And it's about a man called Roger Casement, who was an Anglo-Irish diplomat who documented the mass murder of Belgians by, sorry, a mass murder of Africans in the Congo by the Belgians in the first part of the 20th century, the last part of the 19th century. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard about the genocide of the, of the Congolese? I, I know, I see a Congolese patient actually, but I don't know, he didn't put it in terms of genocide, but certainly he's told some gruesome stories. Uh, no. do, you know, do you know how many Congolese were killed by the Belgians and maimed and their limbs were cut? No, I don't know. 10 million. It's not even mentioned in our history books. And then these Africans want to come to the north to escape from the horrible conditions that we helped to create. And all of a sudden, we have this big dilemma. What do we do? Well, so I'm saying it's that screwed. Trauma upon trauma upon trauma. Yeah, you know, when I imagined asking you this question, because <laughs> I've seen you so many times, of course, ask people where these questions are coming from. And, and I actually imagined you talking about this on the personal level, as in, you know, because it's overwhelming, right? I mean, how do we. How do you face something as intractable as the Palestinian-Israeli conflict or the genocide in the Congo? And it reminds me of when I was working at Michael Guerin Hospital in the emergency room, and all of a sudden we got word that the RCMP was bringing in this guy that was making all kinds of death threats, and mm -hmm. and they came in and they they put down this stack of like you know hundred pages of everything they pulled online and. And so we went in and my colleague did, you know, some kind of assessment and somewhere in the middle of the assessment of asking about his sleep. And he said, uh, oh, my mother was a Holocaust survivor. And then my colleague said, oh, how's your appetite? <laughs> and when we were done, I said, look, I'm going to go back in there and talk to him. Yeah. And I kind of went down and I said, tell me a bit more about this. And it turns out that his mother was the product of an SS officer and a Jewish woman. And the mum had killed herself and jumped off the balcony. <laughs> and as far as he could tell me, he'd never told anybody this. And, mm. you know, all of a sudden this rage had a place for me. And, you know, the only job I could do in triaging was to encourage him to get help or to talk about this. But the way this connects for me is the way this trickles down. These you know, people end up all of a sudden in Toronto or Vancouver with, you know, the man I'm seeing from the Congo who's in Ottawa trying to be a stay-at-home dad with two kids and there's no place for there, these these memories are very difficult to integrate or understand i wonder be curious to find out what your patient actually what your client actually knows about all this it happened over 100 years ago now but the ripple effect is still continuing well what you did for him i mean you said all you could do is to suggest he gets help you did much more for him you actually listened to him and it's that not listening to the other that creates the problem. I mean, most, many of my Jewish community cohort and some of my friends, they've never heard a Palestinian speak. They've never asked, what happened to you? They've never asked, what's your experience? What's your feelings? What is your assessment? It's like we completely invalidate the other side. And now this happens, of course, in personal relationships. I mean, when I look at my 52-year-old marriage, much of the issue when we had issues was that we didn't know how to listen to each other. We just didn't, our point of view was just how reality occurred. And that is another reality and another point of view that didn't penetrate. Well, my wife and I talk about this all the time and she's Polish and 
they've certainly had their fair share of trauma over the last few hundred years. And um, for me, the intimacy of that interaction, I mean, it gets so hot, you know, I mean, somebody, you can't hide in a relationship. There's so many places you can hide, but I don't think you can actually hide if you really want to get close to someone. And I, uh, it was amazing for me to go from having done so much individual therapy. I remember going to couples therapy and it was totally different. I mean, it was, and I do that a lot of that work and couples want to come in and learn how to fight. And I have to learn where they come from. <laughs> I have to find out about their ancestry. You know, and they look at me sideways sometimes. They're like, why are you asking about this? I'm like, I have to know about the chain of attachment. And if there ever was some memory or what was the memory of safety in your family? Was there some place that someone knew where they could take a deep breath and not expect things to fall apart. You know, that I, I don't actually believe if we can't touch those things that we will ever really feel safe enough to let, you know, as you often say, let, let ourselves cry or be sad. Well, safety is the issue. And um, of course, when people come to your office, they have no idea about safety because if they had safety, they wouldn't be in your office in the first place. Like, in other words, if in their formative years they had the safety to be themselves, they wouldn't need to see a therapist. But the reason, um, <laughs> I'm going to put this sardonically, but the reason you and I get to make a living is that people are not treated well when they're children. And um, sometimes I laugh about it, actually. I, I mean, I write these books, I speak internationally and so on, and all these other people that I've mentioned, and you do your work, and what are we saying? We're saying something so simple. You treat human beings well, they're going to be okay. You don't treat them well, especially when they're children, they're not going to be okay. That's it. I've just summed up 100 years of brain research. You treat human beings well, they're going to be okay. You don't treat them well, especially when they are children, they are not going to be okay. This is one of Gabor's gifts to just call it like it is, and as he has said time and time again, we do not need more research to confirm that maltreating people, especially children, causes damage. We simply have to get on with the work of making space within ourselves to be able to respond in compassionate and understanding ways, especially with those that are in our care. When we come back, Gabor talks about his transition from his previous life as a physician to his new role teaching his own methodology of therapy called Compassionate Inquiry. Gabor's point about maltreatment and its effects on us throughout the lifespan is at the heart of my work, and I'm excited to announce that my workbook, which focuses on how to cultivate intimacy in your interpersonal relationships, is coming out at the end of the month. You can pre-order it at theintimacyproblem.com at a heavily discounted price for a limited time. The impact of early trauma on our ability to feel safe with others is simply a fact. And I work with thousands of people from around the world, helping them to understand often complicated and conflicting feelings. I offer a free ebook at my website, mitchellsmolkin.com. And if this is relevant to you, please head on over. I'm grateful to you, my listeners, and if you haven't subscribed, please do so, and review the podcast on Apple if you have the time. 
Now, back to my interview with the imitable Dr. Gabor Mate. Do you miss being a physician? Do you miss, do you still do one-on-one work or are you mostly writing? I'm just curious what that's like for you now at this stage in your life. I rarely do one-on-one work. I just don't have the time. I mean, very occasionally somebody will reach out and I'm moved to work with them for a little bit, but only to put them, give them some sense of direction. But no, I don't. I just don't have the time. I have a lot of speaking engagements online. This is my fourth interview. in 24 hours. I have a book to write. This, this is too much going on for me to do. No, but I do run a course. I should say I run it. I help to lead a course called Compassion Inquiry for therapists, which is a very deeply immersive year-long program. It's not for the faint-hearted. But what I've learned has been translated into a program. How I work with people has been translated into a program called Compassion Inquiry. And people can actually participate in the program. There's a new cohort in September, I believe, right? That's coming in? There's a new cohort. Yeah, we had three cohorts a day, so a year, sorry. So far, we've had about 1,400 people in 77 countries taking the course. For the most part, people say it's the deepest training they've ever received. Some people, they, they're not suited for it, and then they just really give up opportunity for people to withdraw with a full refund. But... I do work there, and I am, and, and and several times a month I have online calls with my students. So that's the in-person work that I do. But I don't do individual therapy so much, no, no, or in fact, hardly at all. I was thinking about this today. You know, I know that the podcast that you're being interviewed on is called "The Dignity of Suffering," and I think this the name of it came. I was at a conference, I think, in Ireland with my colleague and. And I think it came out of our conversations about how, you know, how our symptoms can be very much, you know, cheapened in a particular context, or there's this kind of wild goose chase to get better. And it sounds a little bit from the title of your, your next book, right? The myth, the myth of normal, you know, but as somebody who's in the middle of my career and often working 40 hours a week, I often wonder how it, it impacts me when I walk in the door at night and see my own family. And I think you've even written a bit about you know, how that affected you over the years. And, but I'm, I'm curious, like how, how would you say it impacted you really opening up these doors and helping make space for people's pain? I mean, I, I imagine when I think of you that you draw obviously from your own history. And I know, you know, my grandfather was, uh, his whole family was murdered. He survived in the Red Army and he couldn't he couldn't actually even tell me the names of his siblings. I write about this in a chapter on trauma that when he tried to, we both almost fainted. And I knew that, you know, this is not a cavalier notion of talking about emotion. This man was not meant to talk about emotion. He was meant to survive that. He had a career as a dentist, to have children. And I realized on some level that that is, is there. You know, it's in me, this, this way that... But I, I'm just curious... Uh, when you look back, how you understand how this has impacted you as a, as a human being, being in the heart of so many people's uh, pain and... Well, I can tell you a quick story. I, you probably know that I work with psychedelics sometimes, and particularly with this Amazonian brew called ayahuasca. Sure. Which is a shamanic modality. So I landed in Peru two years ago now to lead a retreat for doctors and healers and psychologists and so on 
with ayahuasca, I was going to lead the, the retreat. The shamans give the brew and lead the ceremonies, but I do the leadership during the day, helping people prepare for the ceremony, identify their intentions after ceremony to help them understand their experience and then how to integrate them into their lives. To make a long story short, after the first ceremony, the shamans came to me and they knew nothing about me except that I was some medical from up north. You know, they didn't know my history. They weren't impressed that I'd written all these books because they didn't know it. <laughs> they just experienced me as I was there. And they said to me, we can't have you leave this retreat because there's so much trauma in you that you haven't resolved yet. <laughs> you had a big scare when you were an infant and you haven't got over it yet. <laughs> uh, which is true. They said, uh, and you worked with so many traumatized people, you've absorbed their traumas and you haven't cleared them out of yourself. So they fired me for my own retreat. <laughs> And they assigned one of them just to work with me alone while the rest of them worked with the group over the next 10 days. What did, what did it feel like when they said that? Do you remember what was happening for you when they well, first held of, them? Well, there was a big yes. A big got, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, I got it. You're 100% right. I got it. Number one. Number two, part of it was an egoic response. What do you mean? I'm fired from my own retreat. And, you know, these people all came to see me, you know, and... and and how can and how can I let them down? There was that big thing of how can I let these people down who came to work with me from all over the world and now they can't. But I realized it was best for them too, because if I was going to work with them from a stressed and trauma suffused place, I, I wasn't going to be at my best. And and the people that would came to, that came to work with me, they really appreciated that I would take the time to care take care of myself because they were in the same position. And these shamans said that they'd never seen such a traumatized bunch because they expected when a lot of doctors and healers were coming that they would clear the trauma and the stress out of themselves. But these people hadn't because in the West, we're not trained to do that. In your training, nobody ever taught you how to clear trauma and stress out of yourself. As part of your job, you work with these people 40 hours a week, you absorb their traumatized energies, and you come home to your family. And uh, these shamans picked it up like that. So that was a huge, huge lesson. I want to share with you that I was at yoga today and I was crying my brains out. I went for a swim later. <laughs> I was crying. Yeah. <laughs> and um, something you said in Toronto, I think you shared a story about yourself doing LSD with a friend, a friend that and you said something similar to what you're saying now, which is, look, I'm in my 70s. I'm, I, I still sometimes shake on the ground like a baby. And yeah. I, I just want you to know if we don't ever have a chance to talk again or we don't, I want you to know that that, it has not only just stayed with me when I let myself cry or I realized that I don't have to know. <laughs> and in fact, there's actually something very freeing about, you know, just letting it happen. But I, I know that has reverberated with the people that I see. And even a man as recently as two hours ago was sitting here with me, looking up at me. And and he said, I think what I'm hearing is that it's okay. <laughs> you know, it's, I think what I'm hearing from you, and I never say this explicitly, of course. So I'm always a bit surprised when, when someone even hears me saying anything, because I don't really know what I'm saying. But when that gets dis distilled in the way that things are held, I know I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, but I know you don't see yourself that way. I, I've appreciated your candor and it has given me courage to 
put myself out here in this space and just be open because I don't think I don't think there's any other way. I don't think we can hide behind the walls of Victorian, you know, the turn of the last century therapy and our relationships have changed. So I just want to thank you for your uh Well sure. And what I hear was your story and and your client who says it's okay. Maybe you didn't say it. But it's not just saying it. Again, it's a space that you provide where people can actually feel safe. You know, so when we provide the the, the safe space, we don't have to say so much. Th there's that process inside people. By the way, I'm glad you go for swimming because that's the only way I stay sane. Mm -hmm. Right now, one of my, I've been relatively untouched by COVID because all I was going to do is stay home and write a book anyway. So I wasn't going to travel and all that, you know like I usually do, so it hasn't impinged me on very much. But the major way COVID has impinged on me was swimming because mm -hmm. it was shut down for a while, and then when they opened it, you can almost swim one person per lane and only a few times a week. So I'm telling you, if I didn't swim three times a week, I'd be even more insane than I am. You know, that's, Yeah, no, I hear you. For me, it's absolutely so essential. To, I mean, I do other forms of exercise, but there's something about being in the water. Uh, for me is the ultimate yeah the open swimming in stockholm in the lakes is amazing when you come i'll uh oh, wow. i'll take you out there and we'll uh you mean it's warm i, I wanted warm what's enough? that are they warm enough to swim in oh yeah yeah. Oh, yeah yeah i'll get you a nice a nice wetsuit and uh you'll be you'll be toasty oh great <laughs> great I want to give a chance to people who who made the time to come it means a great deal to me that people are here and a good friend of mine, Bob Williams in, in Toronto asked, and I mean, you've talked about it a bit, but I know that it's become more mainstream in the U.S., right? The FDA has supported studies of, uh, like you know, of, essentially, yeah, of, of ecstasy, basically, small dosing. And uh, he wanted to sort of, well, his question was, was the therapeutic use of ethnogen psychedelics in the treatment of trauma uh, and what you thought about that? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I've been doing that work for 12 years now or so. It's, it's, the possibilities go way beyond what Western medicine can even dream about. Western medicine has no idea how to deal with trauma. And the best we do is we medicate the symptoms of it, but we don't get at the heart of it. And especially with this doggedly biological point of view of mental health conditions, that it's a biological problem in the brain. Well, yeah. Everything is a biological problem in the brain because the brain is part of the body. And sure. what, what creates the biology of the brain is life experience. So when we're trying to change the biology, instead of looking at the life experience, we're looking at totally backwards. So and there's no proof whatsoever. I mean, I'm saying zero proof. I've just researched the subject again, that any mental health conditions is caused by any uh, chemical imbalance in the brain. And I say that having had taken Prozac myself for depression, and it actually helped me. But, you know, that doesn't prove anything. Because just because you take Prozac and it helps with depression, it doesn't mean that the depression was caused by a biological problem. For example, if you have a migraine headache and you take an aspirin and it helps you, does it prove that migraines are caused by a lack of aspirin? Or if you go to a party and you're feeling shy and you have a drink and all of a sudden you do the life sure. Does it mean that your social anxiety was caused by a lack of alcohol? I mean, it's just circular. So the point is that uh, Western medicine doesn't approach these mental health issues. And PTSD is only one form of post-traumatic experience. Judith Herman, who's a Harvard psychiatrist, wrote a book 
1985, I think, called uh, Trauma and Recovery, where she said there's only one psychiatric diagnosis, complex post-traumatic stress. Hmm. The, the depression, anxiety, psychosis, bipolar, hmm. it's all post-traumatic stress now. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So PTSD is only in one form. But because it's got criteria that makes it easy to identify, it's easy to study. So they've done studies now with MDMA. It's not the medicine by itself, by the way. It's MDMA-supported psychotherapy. And I've worked with MDMA myself. It's amazing what it opens mm. up for people. And then you can really do therapy when people are completely open. And their, and their defenses are relaxed. And they can experience emotions because the MDMA relaxes the amygdala, which is the fear center. Now they can experience emotions without being afraid of those emotions, which was the original trauma in the first place. There's been studies now with very encouraging results. I personally don't need a stitch more research to convince me that psychedelics can help in the right context, under the right guidance. I have to emphasize that. But they can do things that Western medicine can't even fathom. What amazed me, I saw those videos. I was at Bessel's uh, old institute in, in Boston, and they yeah. they showed, what's his name? He's one of the leading researchers, right? He's a ponytail Michael Nickpoffer? Michael yes. He showed videos with, with these, you know, hard to treat soldiers and yeah. right. they were sitting on both sides of the bed. And what was so amazing for me was the poetry that came out of these men's, it was men that I saw, but yeah. the poetry that came out for me was almost like classical reading Jung almost. It was like this mm -hmm. mythological healing that was taking place within, I don't know, 48 hours or something. I mean, it was... Well, uh, Sigmund Freud said that dreams are the royal road to the unconscious. Well, actually, I would say today, psychedelics are the royal road to the unconscious. Because the difference between dreams and psychedelics is that when you're dreaming, you're not consciously there. And it's really difficult to interpret dreams. You know, and Freud was terrible at it. I mean, his invitations are hair-raisingly bad as far as I'm concerned. But he certainly got that the unconscious was speaking through the dreams. but with psychedelics, you're actually there to witness your emotional states and your dreams, hence the poetry. So whether with ayahuasca or mushrooms or MDMA or peyote or whatever people use in the right context, they can be they can really open you up and you can get to see the the, the what you've been carrying in your unconscious, just like the dreams would show you. So yeah, uh, now, you know, are they a panacea? No, they're not. Uh, but are they an amazing modality that we're insane to ignore? Yeah. It strikes me that at the end of the day, there's a confluence in our lives that allows us to open certain doors. And, and, and the way I hold these things are that they are, they're an adjunct to a very human process. Yeah. And I, I just find myself just just taking a step back sometimes from ever, as you just pointed out, um, investing, you know, these processes or even a therapeutic session with with more than really just our human like attempt to make space and and move the dial. I think it sounds like this 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 has the ability in some ways to circumvent or surpass defenses that allow a kind of integration. And yet the work still goes on is kind of my um, so, what can I say? I, it, it's a small part of what I do, 
but it's also some of the most exciting part of what I do when I work it because the results are so gratifying. And I've seen amazing healing from physical illness and, uh, and of course, mental health conditions. And, and it's not because the substances, because when you're taking Prozac or an antipsychotic or a stimulant, whatever you're taking, you're simply trying to change the biology of the brain. As long as you're taking the medicine, your brain sure. is slightly different sure. state. With the psychedelics, you're not trying to change the biology of the brain in the direct sense because you only, you know, an MDM experience, you might have four times. A psych an ayahuasca experience, you might have two or three times. It's your consciousness that you're changing. And that's where the healing comes in. So it's, they're not drugs in the sense that you take them to change your biology. They're, in a sense, to open your mind to different possibilities and to look deeper into yourself. And, and and out of that deeper look will come a new outlook to replace the limiting and pathological ways that you might have experienced life before. Now that's, you know, I don't want to romanticize it or to overstate it, but that's the essence of it. Yeah, sure. It makes sense. I know that you've done a lot of work with your son or that you've, uh, at least pre-pandemic, you were having, uh, maybe it went online, I don't, but yeah, I, I know the relationship with my own son has been this incredible mirror and yeah, and a huge deepening in many ways. <laughs> I learn a tremendous amount and I'm curious what it's been like for you to do that work or to work with him. Well, so my son Daniel and I started this, uh, giving this workshop called Hello Again, Fresh Start for Adult Children and Their Parents. And we gave the first one in 2016. If anybody wants to see it, just Google Daniel and Gabo Mate, uh, YouTube, and you can see our 2016. And we actually on stage at each other's throats. Something. <laughs> That's, you know, no, it's, it's a really good conversation, but the tensions, the parent child tensions are actually acted out on stage because that's where we're at. So we've been doing this workshop for five years now. We, we're going to do it online again, probably this year or in person, depending on how COVID goes. And we're writing a book about it. Hello again, a fresh start for adult children in their pants. But he's also helping me write my the book I'm working on right now, The Myth of Normal. Uh, in fact, you know what? If I can possibly, no, I I was going to show you the cover, but it would involve a bit of complicated jiggling. But he, that I'm writing that book with my son, and he's brilliant, and it's not he's not quite a co-writer. But he's also not a ghostwriter. Like a ghostwriter takes the ideas and then writes the book themselves. Now he's not writing this book on his own, but he's also not uh, fully a co-writer in the sense that it's my ideas and my analysis of society and, and, and health, physical and mental and politics and social structure and all that. But we create each chapter together. So I'll write it. And then he goes over it and edits it and changes some of the wording or even puts in some of his own wording. And it's just a real collaborative process. And we bat it back and forth. And boy, have we learned to work together. So it was very tense in the beginning. We've been working on this book for two years now. It's been heavy going. It's just about done. A few more weeks. And I'm very happy with it. How is that different than your other work? How is the intimacy with him? I wrote totally on my own. And, uh, I mean, emotionally, though, how is that process of being so close to him different than what you do otherwise? Or Well, at times it's intense because, of course, I want to be right and I want my way to be the way <laughs> it is. 
and uh, he's he's very sharp at seeing my flaws and seeing where I'm overstating things or where I'm losing the reader, you know. So I don't. Hmm. I, in general, I take criticism quite well, but on my writing, I like I just want to be admired, you know. So part of just like, what do you mean I'm not saying it well enough, you know? So it, at times it's been tense, and we've had to renegotiate it. It's been a really beautiful working relationship. It's, <laughs> it's so smooth now, and it's so collaborative, and I, I just look forward to it every day to interact with him about the next chapter, as I do today, for that matter. So it's really good. I think you helped me realize that I probably do that sometimes with my wife when I actually ask for her opinion for my writing. And, yeah, yeah. But I'm not really asking. I'm just, uh, you know, there's I don't really want to hear the truth. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same way with my wife. and. My, she would find it difficult at times to give me feedback because I get so tense around it, you know. But it's it's, it's got a lot better, you know, because I realized that actually I can learn from everything they say. Yeah, sure. One last question, which I found myself asking all my guests. Yeah. What keeps you up at night? What? Uh... Not much. I sleep, <laughs> I, sleep, I sleep at night. And maybe if I get too excited, you know. Like last night. Yesterday, like what did I do yesterday? Yesterday, I did three hour to an hour and a half interviews. I finished, I revised the chapter of my book with my son, and I Skyped it and zoomed it in twice. I bicycled to a demonstration for the to commemorate the deaths of these 215 children that were just found, these native children who's great yeah. identified victims of residential schools. And then I came home and finished the chapter. And so I, w I woke up quite a few times during the night just because of all the adrenaline. But in general, I don't, when you say what keeps me up at night, you usually mean what makes me anxious or what makes me worried. No, you answered, but you know, I knew you, I knew you were being a bit cheeky. Yeah. Yeah. Not, 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 what not. do you think that says? What, what, I mean, I'm not in Canada right now and I've struggled in some ways to, uh, I think it's a very, you know, when people come to me here, right? International news of uh, what happened and, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like what, how does that wash over you in terms of our identity as a nation? And, uh, well, listen, the identity of any nation is based on lives. I mean, the Canadian national anthem, our home and native land. No, it's our home on native land. Hmm. We took it and that wouldn't be any problem, but we continue to do it. I mean, Israel did the same thing. They took the land from the Palestinians. We can't change history. No matter what you think about it, you can't change it. But do they have to keep taking more land and destroying their homes and, and denying them water rights and torturing their children? Do they have to keep doing that? So in the States, it's the same thing. That, that country was based on, based on the brutal slavery and the genocide of the indigenous population. Okay. So that's what happened. You can't change it, but can you acknowledge it and do what you can to repair the impacts of it? But nobody's doing that. So that's how I feel about countries. I want to I want to thank you for your directness, not not just today, but I found as I get older in my work, and I have you know one of my teachers is uh, uh, listening right now, and from a very early age. In my second podcast, I interview her and mm -hmm. and she looked me in the eyes and she said, "You know there's no there's no going back when we have to start to face things in our lives and 
as you pointed out, uh, I don't know what the shamans would say about me if they took a look in my eyes. <laughs> yeah. I always get nervous whenever I say anything in therapy because I don't know what's around the corner for me. Um, but your voice in Canada and, and around the world, uh, I think you managed to bring together just a kind of sober look at what it means to be human and deal. Yeah, try and just hold our pain in our families, with our friends, with our patients. And it meant a lot to me that you came on. I reached out to you on a whim and I said to myself, if I'm going to do this, I want to reach out to people who matter to me. And mm. I just want to thank you for your, your honesty and your work. And well, thanks for having I hope I can do it justice. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Let me give you a quote before I leave here. Okay. This is, I was just looking at this. This is uh, undeniable. Writer is um, Nadezhda Mandelstam, who's a Russian writer whose husband died in the Gulag. He was Osip Mandelstam, a great Russian poet. And he was killed in one of Stalin's jails or camps. And Nadezhda, in her memoirs, writes, people always clutch at straws. Nobody wants to part with his illusions. And it's very difficult to look life in the face. To see things as they are demands a superhuman effort. There are those who want to be blind, but even among those who think they're not, how many are left who can really see? Or rather, who do not slightly distort what they see to keep their illusions and hopes alive. And really our job is just to keep tearing away at that veil of illusion that most of us have suspended between ourselves and reality out of our deep pain. So thanks for this opportunity to to do that a little bit and uh, I wish you all the best yeah and I'll give you the last word I, I wish you all the best as well and good luck with the film I'll be watching and, and your book take care <laughs> bye bye okay bye bye and thank you to all those that joined us today what a pleasure it was to have the time to speak with Gabor I told myself before the interview that it was like I had the opportunity to sit down with one of the smartest most compassionate people I know for a drink. And that's exactly how it felt. One of the attendees wrote that she appreciated getting to know more about Gabor on a personal level, and I was touched that he warmed up and we got to share stories from our lives. His final words are worth repeating, that really our job is just to keep tearing away at that veil of illusion that most of us have suspended between ourselves and reality out of our deep pain. This membrane that we have cultivated to protect ourselves often from ourselves takes time to uncover, and when we uncover aspects of it, it can rattle us quite profoundly. But when scrutinized, opens doors to new parts of ourselves and deeper relationships. I hope you drew some inspiration from my conversation with him. If you haven't read his work, it is deeply moving and possibly life-changing, so I encourage you to do so. Please subscribe, share this with your friends if you liked it, and rate and review the podcast if you haven't already done so and if you have time. You can connect with me at mitchellsmolkin.com. I remain faithfully yours.